I'm Dan Masterson, host of Strategy Talk, where we take a unique view of world events. We report news as history. With me today is the editor of StrategyPage.com and well-known military author, Jim Dunnigan. Associate editor and syndicated columnist, Austin Bay, also joins us. Welcome, Austin and Jim. Thought we'd talk a little bit about the Ukraine. We, we haven't visited there for a while. Uh, I was just going back to refresh my memory when everything happened, Austin. It, it looks like, you know, prior to 2014, things started the rumble, but the, the really big event was the annexation of the Crimea, which was, was uh, huge, and none of the other world leaders stepped in to do anything about it, and the Ukraine has remained in turmoil since then. Uh, well, can you uh, well, pick up on that a little bit? Yeah, and I think you're referring to about three columns I wrote in the space of, I think, five weeks between the end of February 2014 and maybe last week of March, first week first week of April. The annexation, as I recall, took place on March 15th. But understand the attack on Crimea began sometime in the middle of February 2014 with infiltration uh, of uh, the Crimea, understand that the Russians control the big uh, naval base at Sevastopol. That was part of the of the uh, dissolution deal the, that they signed and made an agreement with uh, Ukraine. <clears throat> they have basically had a, I think it was a 50-year lease or maybe a lease in perpetuity. There was a, a renegotiation uh, uh, element to it. So, so they've already got uh, at least twenty twenty five thousand military personnel uh, in, in Crimea. But the, exactly when this infiltration starts is uh, up for debate. But we all know about it by the 24th or 25th of, of February because there are, well, they came to be called uh, little green men. Not all of them were dressed in green uniforms. Many of them did not have their identification patches on it, but they were clearly Russian uh, special forces uh, or, well, equivalent special forces, some of their elite uh, airborne uh, units uh, that were <coughs> taking over uh, Ukrainian uh, security positions, posts, arsenals, uh, surrounding uh, uh, military facilities uh, in the Crimea. That's a big move right there, Dan, because that violated the Budapest Test Accord of 1994, which the U.S. and the U.K. both signed off on as supporting it. And what that agreement did, the accord, I understand it wasn't done as a treaty, but it was a big deal. Ukraine would give Russia all of its nuclear weapons, in exchange, Russia promised to, that it would respect Ukraine's territorial integrity, and it was an important agreement in bringing stability to post-Cold War Eastern Europe. And, of course, uh, he didn't, uh, the, uh, the, the, the Russians didn't uh, uh, live up to it. They broke it, and they broke it in a calculated fashion. That's why I began not just with the annexation, but with the fact they had a a, uh, a plan, an invasion, one of these creeping wars of aggression. They're not new. We saw Milosevic in Serbia pull one off in Bosnia and Croatia. 
in the uh, in the early 1990s, and there are even er- earlier examples uh, going. Jim and I have discussed this several centuries, maybe four or five millennia. But it, it's that was calculated, and then you show the calculation because the political act that occurs in uh, I, th- I think again it's uh, off the top of my head it's March 18th, 2014, when uh, Russia annexes Crimea. And that is, you know, it was, World War II was supposed to make it uh, something you just did not do anymore in Europe, which was grab territory through aggression. And uh, Russia did it. And you're right, the response was minimal, absolutely minimal. Uh, there was uh, expressed outrage on uh, a half dozen uh, European uh, uh, European nations, but uh, overall the response was uh, was muted. Uh, even though everyone knew what had uh, realized what had been done, and part of that was is because the American response was muted. Uh, remember, Barack Obama was resetting relations with uh, Russia in uh, 2009. Well, uh, Vladimir Putin reset the relations in Eastern Europe with the move into Ukraine. Calculated move. Now, the follow-on also to me uh, looks as if there was had to have been preparation. Uh, but part of it, part of the you know, argument, the historical argument over this is that was did Putin just realize that he'd gotten away with it and is now going to throw in a second phase, or was the second phase going to be uh, attempted anyway? Uh, that's uh, one of those you know, historical questions. It's interesting to uh, address, but the fact is, what begins is uh, an infiltration and a low-level war in eastern Ukraine, in the Donbass region, with supposed uh, Ukrainian-Russian ethnic secessionists establishing what are essentially separatist states uh, within Ukraine. But there are all those cell phone pictures and, and documented reports of Russian soldiers, some supposedly Russian uh, mercenaries, and pay of uh, Russian intelligence, Russian tanks and armor in some cases, anti-aircraft vehicles, even including that uh, uh, missile that ultimately shot down a, a, that uh, Malaysian-slash-Dutch uh, KLM uh, flight. Uh, over uh, Ukraine, which was uh, the biggest uh, error that uh, Putin's uh, <laughs> Putin's commanders in Ukraine uh, made, but the uh, and it uh, but again the outrage outrage was there, but the pressure on political pressure on Moscow was was not uh, uh, was not extreme. Now there is a sanctions process that comes in. And as Jim has pointed out, that some of the sanctions have hurt the Russians, which is part of the reason that you saw the Russians fighting by hook, crook, covert, and overt to try to minimize minimize the sanctions. But the fact is, by the fall of 2014, you had, or we we saw, substantial portions of the uh, Russia-Ukraine border areas inside Ukraine really under the control of Russian forces. There was another invasion. <clears throat> they have not been annexed, but they've supposedly seceded from uh, from Ukraine. Now, one of the things I, I think Jim's going to get into, but uh, it's certainly docu- documented, there have been a lot of failures on the part 
of this uh, Russian slash uh, ethnic secessionist uh, uh, movement invasion in in uh, in eastern Ukraine. They haven't had the success they had in in, in Crimea and with the. Uh, Changes in administrations, not only in the, in the uh, U.S., but also in other uh, European uh, NATO nations. Uh, there's uh, been a, a, not a, not a reversal, but some <coughs> hardening of attitudes to, uh, towards uh, hardening responses, I should put, to uh, uh, Russian uh, aggression uh, in Ukraine. Big deal? Yeah, it's a big deal when you go and, and you use military force to uh, take territory and then boldly annex it. And that is what the Russians did. Jim, did I do a reasonable job of trying to cram in about eight months of behavior there in the 2014? Yeah, the, uh, the Ukrainian situation was unique because of the treaty, the 1994 agreement that basically had uh, Ukraine giving up the nuclear weapons. That was unique. Uh, well, there were some of the Central Asian, you know, the stands, as it were, but they didn't have the history, so to speak, that Ukraine did. Ukraine was arguably the, well, even the Russians, most Russians admitted. That's where, you know, Russian civilization, the Kiev civilization was born. Moscow, you know, and, and Leningrad came much later. They were outposts. Uh, some of them were basically so out of the way and obscure, even the Mongols didn't bother with them. Um, but the, the problem is the Ukraine has never forgotten, and the Russians got reminded. I mean, they got reminded in 1914 when the, uh, the Germans temporarily won the, the World War I in the East, and Ukraine was uh, free for a while. Um, and uh, and I, I remember during the Cold War, you know, always wondering, you know, until I, you know, went and researched it, you know, why Ukraine had its own flag and own, its own seat in the United Nations. And that was basically the Russians playing their game. That, oh, yeah, they're really independent, uh, but they're part of the Soviet Union. Well, that, that, you know, the whole Soviet Union thing was another huge, you know, scam to justify an empire that, as it turned out, didn't want to boast of, well, half the population wanted no part in being part of this Russian empire. And uh, this disappointed a lot of Russians. Um, and uh, Putin, when he came to power, basically in 99-2000, uh, he made it a point of uh, uh, saying that he was going to basically unify, you know, deal with the, what they call the near abroad. That was basically the, you know, the, uh, the, the uh, 14, the, you know, the, uh, well, the, the, the 10 or so, uh, nations that were created with the dissolution of the Soviet Union in 91 that the Russians really missed that they felt they should get back and uh, they've been failing for many reasons uh, ever since uh, Ukraine was considered a special case because as Austin points out there was there was a treaty they had this lease and it was always a hot potato in Russia they said oh yeah we got this damn piece of paper you know and we had this lease uh, but the Ukrainians are corrupt. Well, that was true, but then so were the Russians. And they're busting our chops. Uh, 
uh, actually a lot of the stands, you know, the uh, the, the main Russian uh, spaceport, Cosmodrome, that's where they're, they're, they're you know, Cape Canaveral uh, was in uh, what, uh, Kazakhstan. And uh, they were constantly getting the, the rents, uh, you know, jacked up and, and basically having getting a hard time from their former, you know, subjects. And that offended a lot of Russians, you know, in, in so many ways. Um, but... The point that hasn't been touched on here is it's a, it's a new world. I mean, it's a, a, the the, uh, the last time the Russians uh, reassembled their empire, they temporarily lost control of a lot of it during at the end of the World War One when there was a civil war, basically between people who well, it was between there were many, the major factions were monarchists, uh, democrats, and the communists. But many, many more. Uh, a typical chaotic situation, um, and uh, the Russians—that's how—that's where the the, the the communists invented this, this this fable called the Soviet Union. That no, no, we're not conquering these people. We're simply uniting them in a in a voluntary. I love the way they use voluntary. Uh, you know, uh, association. Uh, that's why USSR said for the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, and they call a lot of their their areas, not provinces, but a republic. Uh, and of course, most of these republics, uh, you know, were people who didn't want any part of being ruled by Russia, uh, you know, indirectly or otherwise. And what the Russians discovered in Ukraine, well, actually, they first discovered it in Georgia. The little Georgia down in the Caucasus is one of those rare, you know, Christian states like Armenia. Um, and uh, Joseph Stalin was from uh, uh, Georgia, and he's still a hero down there. I, 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 and the joke is, well, maybe it's not a joke. It's because he killed so many Russians. Um, but the um, uh, they they moved into Georgia with use similar tactics, uh, and there they were in support of uh, uh, of a breakaway portion of Georgia uh, occupied by you know non Georgians, and this place indeed it de facto became a part of um, of Russia. But they were not able to, well, they were not willing to basically go after all of Georgia because the Georgians, as they found out, you know, with Stalin and, and people in, in the Caucasus in general, is they can be a tough and complicated nut to crack. Uh, and so they, they basically uh, settled for Abkhazia, you know, and, and basically backed off. Uh, but then came the opportunity to grab Ukraine, uh, Crimea, and then they, as Austin pointed out, then they said, well, let's grab Donbass, which was another creation of the Soviet period. Uh, it was a, 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 an industrialized area uh, that because of all the industrialization, they had to import a lot of uh, non-Ukrainian labor. So you had a, a, Ukraine, you had a Russian, ethnic Russian uh, large minority, almost a, a, a half the population there. And these were basically the people who were supposed to be uh, calling for, uh, you know, reunification with Mother Russia. And uh, that was the first shock the Russians got. Most of these people didn't want any part of Russia. Uh, and the second shock the Russians got uh, after the ease, relative ease with which they took Crimea uh, was the fact that the Ukrainians mobilized. And was, the Russians have always made a big thing about they mobilized to oppose you know, the French in the 19th century, the, the, the Germans in the, twice in, the, uh, in the 20th century. And here are the Ukrainians who, Russians admit, 
They're, you know, they're, they're, they're the, they're related to us. They are the, the heart of the Russian civilization. Well, maybe they were doing it. Not only that, one reason the Russians were able to take, uh, Ukraine, uh, in the 17th and 18th century was that Ukraine had never been independent before that. They'd basically been, been taken apart by many, by the Turks, by the Poles, by the Lithuanians, what have you, uh, and, and, and the Muscovy, which was, later became Russia. And, and, uh, and p- part of the problem was that they had established a Cossack culture. Cossack is basically the Wild East. We think of the Wild West. Well, before the Wild West, there was the Wild East. The Russians were pushing to the East, and by the, uh, by the 18th century, they, they basically reached well, Alaska. I mean, that's as far as they got. And that was a pretty wild period in, in Russian history. But a lot of the people who were, are, uh, if not individually, but the spirit of the Cossacks. And these are basically people who were granted you know, freedoms by the Tsar and, and, and money and weapons and what have you. Uh, but their freedom was recognized. And this resonated with the, uh, with the, with the Ukrainians and say, look, you screwed us again. You know, we tolerated, a lot of us were Cossacks, uh, and you tolerated us, and, and, and the Tsar used us to try and put down the rebellions, um, a lot of the, the pogroms, as it were, the programs against the, the Jews were basically carried out by the Cossacks, uh, and these guys were, were, were uh, you know, made Quantrell's raiders of the American Civil War period look like, you know, uh, amateurs, uh, and because they've been doing it for centuries. Um, and uh, and the Russians found out that the you know the, that spirit of independence and and basically willingness to unify and quickly adapt uh, was being used against them. They were the Germans. They were the Nazis. And and the Ukrainians basically put aside and they had a lot of differences. There was there was and still is a lot of corruption in Ukraine. Uh, you know, in fact, the, the Russian invasion made the Ukrainians. Uh, basically become more open with admitting, yes, we have a huge corruption problem. And that was a problem in all the post-Soviet states because one thing that brought down the Soviet Union, uh, which was which I used to get into big arguments in the 80s, especially with the CIA um, uh, because you know a lot of the, the official line in the CIA was, well, no, it's not corruption. Soviets are really quite powerful and I says, no, no, damn it, look at the numbers. In fact, I have it, I have it in, a, in a book I published in what 86, uh, second edition of the How to Make War, where I laid it out. I says, look, the numbers don't add up, and this thing's got to go poof. Um, and uh, you know, it got me a lot of airtime, you know, as, as a pundit on that. And of course, it turned out to be right, but it, it shouldn't have been a surprise. And after the fact, it wasn't. Uh, and of course, then you came the period after in the 90s when the corruption basically, uh, which helped us during the Cold War. Uh, it, it is out of control. It still is out of control. Uh, Putin basically and his former, you know, KGB cronies, uh, who were always the smartest guys in the room. It's, in other words, it, throughout the, the Soviet Union period, especially the Cold War, if you were a bright young, you know, uh, man or woman, as it were, in the uh, in the Soviet Union, uh, the best job you could get was with the KGB. They were a combination of CIA, secret police, intelligence agency. You name it, they did it, and they did it very well. We didn't find that out until after the Cold War, and uh, some of my buddies in the CIA were finally allowed to go to Russia um, 
some of them no longer work for the CIA. They, they retire and what have you. But anyway, I, I had access to it because I still knew them and still, you know, schmoozed with them. Uh, I got access to a lot of the, the uh, well, most of it. I mean, there was nothing that was classified that, that didn't come get made public, uh, you know, in the 1990s when the Russian archives were basically wide open to anybody with enough $100 bills. Um and a lot of interesting books were published. But the fact of the matter was, the Ukrainians now knew all the details of what was done to them. I know the New York Times still insists that, well, there's no proof, you know, that, that, that there actually was a famine, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Which just goes to show you, you know, something's, you know, never changed. But anyway, the Ukrainians don't forget. Um, and, um, and for a while, I lived down on the Lower East Side, and I was studying Russian, and I... I, I got a personal lesson when I, I figured I'd practice my Russian. I walked into a, a liquor store to get some wine, and uh, and I said it, you know, uh, you know, when, I forget what I said, but the, the woman behind the the counter looked at me. She said, "Ruski," and I said, "Oh, I really realized this." And you didn't get the Americansky, yes, you did, you know, and blah blah blah, and and and, 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 and then she got wind of my terrible accent, and then okay, Americansky, she sold me the wine. Uh, but they, and I, I asked around. They said, "Oh yeah, you got to be careful. You know, Russians do not come down. And this is in, in in this area. At least not unless they have a good cover story, as it were." Um, and they don't speak Russian, uh, and so you know they haven't forgotten, and uh, and and the Russians did, and that was their mistake. And at the same time, they they realized, well, here's an opportunity in Syria. Let's go in there too. And at that point, you know, Russia had a lot of problems they don't admit. They're broke. Uh, they have a dysfunctional, still have a dysfunctional government, and. And they have, and they have, well, first of all, in the early 90s, they suddenly had half the population they had as the Soviet Union. And then they found out that the portion of the population they had, which is mostly, you know, ethnic Russians, uh, were really dispirited and they weren't having kids. Now, this was a problem throughout, you know, Europe, but there the problem was usually what they call the problem of affluence, you know, and this was, goes back throughout history, where the nobility always had a problem where the women said, I'm not going to have a bunch of kids, that's dangerous, you know, you men have it easy, you can wear armor on the battlefield, you know, us mommies, you know, we got nothing, uh, and so the, the custom of one heir, one spare, and I'm done, uh, you know, became fairly common. Uh, that's a dirty little secret, so to speak, of the, uh, of the pre-industrial age, but there's plenty of documentation for it. The, um, and, of course, it, it basically uh, reappeared when everybody could live like a prince, you know, in many countries in the, in the late 19th and, and 20th century. The minute you got that affluence and you're seeing it with a vengeance uh, and happening very quickly in China, of all places, uh, in South Korea, Japan is fading away. Because they always treat a woman very poorly. I mean, I got I got that from guys when I was in the army fifty years ago. I married Japanese women. They said, "My God, you know that they, despite their being you know, uh, how should I put it, highly contemptuous of non-Japanese, the Japanese women considered American men a big step up in terms of lifestyle." Um, and that they were willing to put up with a lot, uh, you know, simply to get out of Japan. Um, and uh, that's something the Japanese couldn't accept. They, they still have a hard time accepting. So the Russians had this problem. They have no solution for it. And so the population, well, basically crashed in the 90s. And now those, those babies that 
were not born uh, are not available to even be conscripted. And if they are conscripted, it's a lot easier to, uh, to basically buy your way out of, of the uh, draft. Now, most Americans you know, don't remember the, you know, the big uh, to-do about conscription in the United States, which was rare in peacetime. Uh, and it didn't go away until 1972, but actually the numbers were fairly uh, obvious. I got to speak to some old-timers. You know, once I became an expert, as it were, in, in the 70s, uh, down at the uh, Pentagon and what have you. And they said, yeah, 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 we know about that, but we figured if we'd ignored it, maybe it'd go away. I mean, they were very frank with me. I, you don't see much of that anymore. Uh, that's a generational thing, I guess. Uh, but the Russians are, are – some Russians are accepting that. They said, realize we got a problem. And Putin – for all his faults and flaws, he seems to be smart enough to realize eh, that math is not going to work here. Uh, so there's good news and bad news when you have former, you know, secret police uh, and elite secret police force running your country. Is yes, they're very clever at you know reimposing a uh, a police state. That's what they do. Uh, but at the same time, they're cursed with the ability to see what is actually happening. Uh, and this, they were. This tur- it turned out they were very good at during the Cold War. They were the ones telling, you know, the the Communist Party leadership, which had become totally corrupt, you know, in, in the in the seventies and eighties, uh, that you know, hey, the numbers, you know, that it's, it's, this is not going to work. We got to do something. And that's how Gorbachev got support for from the KGB when he introduced his perestroika reform in the 1980s. Now, he felt betrayed as well uh, because, you know, it didn't work. And and, the, and Putin and, and his crew in Russia felt betrayed in Ukraine because they thought, hey, all right, if they're corrupt, we'll play by their rules. And they were trying to buy a, 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 a president who had just been elected on an anti-Russian platform uh, in Ukraine, and they had made a deal to basically take care of him, as it were, you know, pay him off, and he'd become pro-Russian. Well, that became public, you know, for all its flaws. Uh, you know, the newly independent Ukraine had a, a, a rather a liberal and, and open press, and this got reported, and you have what they call, what the Russians call, the Euro Maiden Rebellion. Uh, and yes, it, in fact, it was a rebellion, and, and they drove the, the pro-Russian president out of office. Um, the Russians considered this no fair. Hey, we 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 we, we stole a fair and square, as the old saying goes. And and uh, they've been using that justification uh, for their activities ever since. But it hasn't worked. What worked in in the Crimea, uh, what sort of worked in Georgia, wasn't working in the Ukraine. And now they found themselves in Syria. And running out of uh, soldiers in general, uh, you know, it was in the night in the late 1990s that uh, I, I did the math and I realized that the, for the first time in history, the American peacetime army was larger than the Russian army, um, and and it's still that way. Uh, the Russian armed forces. Even though they they raised pay as much as they could, again like they're broke, uh, and and they're fracked, so to speak, by the the American fracking technology. They're very resentful of that. Well, they're always resentful of American using technology. You know, the Russians. It turned out, uh, uh, I got one of the first uh, Russian language editions of the uh, the compilation of the uh, the casualties of the of the Soviet period, and it turned out the Russians lost not you know t- fifteen or twenty million. Uh, which was the guesstimate during the Cold War and in the West, uh, they lost 29 million people. 
and they this was literally a state secret. Uh, they knew it. It was in the archives, but they felt it would be demoralizing. It would be bad for the Russian psyche, as it were, and encourage their enemies. Uh, but the fact of the matter is, uh, this had long-term effects in the in the in the basically the uh, the talent, uh, you know, the personnel and and the spirit. I mean, Russians basically, you know, what we won, but. What kind of victory is that? And uh, and 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 Putin basically got as far as he did by promising, "Hey, I'm going to fix it. You know, uh, make Russia make Russia great again." Well, the empire is gone; it's not coming back. And uh, you know, and you know, and, and slogans are one thing, and having a secret police uh, and and all sorts of dirty tricks, which worked in the past, they no longer work. And uh, he basically. Got a, a very sharp reality check uh, in in uh, in 2014 and 2015 in Ukraine, and it's basically stalled right now. Now he does have the option if he mobilized all of his reliable forces. In other words, you know the ones who aren't going to uh, do something embarrassing, as happened in in, uh, in Afghanistan <laughs> in the in their initial invasion in uh, 19 uh, you know uh, 79, uh, or in um, in in Chechnya. In the, in the mid '90s, when they first went in there to try and pacify the place, that's fresh in their minds. Uh, they have to basically accept the fact that uh, it would be too much of a risk. And the and and and, and the uh, the invasion in Ukraine so far, especially with you know, uh, you know the new new government in the United States, you know, with the, the, the Trump there, uh, it didn't make any difference. You know, who basically took over if they weren't willing to make deals. You know, like the uh, well, you know, like Obama and then you know, and and a lot and and and, and even Clinton, uh, uh, the Russians were in trouble, and uh, and and it became harder and harder to justify those deals because, like the one with the uh, the Koreans, North Koreans, in the 1990s, and and of course, and you had the one, uh, you know, Austin uh, keeps bringing up, which is which is extremely important because you know Ukraine. Seriously, the better. You know, we could keep our nukes if for a few of them anyway. If nothing else, to keep the Russians out, and they basically, you know, uh, and and they were fresh, fresh in their minds was what happened, uh, you know, to Poland and Eastern Europe, you know, uh, in the 1930s, when when uh, or the Versailles Treaty, um, uh, and and after World War II, when again there was an, an understanding, as it were, that yes, you can have elections and what have you, but Stalin, basically it was one election, we can, we can scam one election, and that will be the last election. All we got to do is get a communist government in there one time, and then we bring in the you know, the KGB advisors, and boom, boom, boom. Well, that lasted for a while, you know, actually, you know, forty years, but eventually it came unraveled. And the Europeans, especially the Eastern Europe, Western Europeans may have forgotten. You know, affluence does a lot of crazy things to people. Um, but the uh, the Eastern Europeans weren't blessed with affluence; they were blessed with the KGB, uh, and they were they were as, as the saying now goes woke uh, and they haven't gone to sleep again and uh, and when the Russians moved into Ukraine they said oh here it goes again because the Russians always said that oh this near abroad no 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 nothing about aggression nothing about you know uh, taking back Finland and the, and the Baltic states and and uh, and our half of Poland and giving the other one half back to the Germans uh, no 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 we're not we wouldn't 
we wouldn't do that. But from first in, in 2008 with Georgia, and then in the 2014 uh, in Crimea, uh, basically even any doubters in Eastern Europe, you know, uh, even the Swedes said, hey, maybe we should join NATO, uh, which had never happened before. Um, and uh, and the biggest mistake, you know, the Russians made was they underestimated, you know, how much memories can inspire and motivate. Uh, and they basically created their own, you know, Frankenstein monster. Uh, they built this thing uh, out of all their past actions, and they couldn't lie anymore. And they didn't have anything to, get, to back it up. I mean, they, they could threaten the use of nuclear weapons, but that's, that's a no-win situation. Uh, and, you know, uh, it, it basically it's a stalemate. And they're looking for a way to, uh, to get out of it. Now, they say they're willing to make a deal, but they're having problems in, 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 the, in the Donbass because the people they brought in there, most of them were, were uh, basically opportunists. Uh, they put out the call. Anybody who's willing to take – basically, they were recruiting Cossacks again. They didn't have, some of them literally were Cossacks, but a lot of them were simply you know, uh, entrepreneurs as well. In fact, out of the Ukraine situation came a, uh, a, uh, a, a contractor, a military contractor company called the Wagner Company. That's a, well, we've explained it in the strategy page several times. Um, and uh, dirty tricks done you know, discreetly. Real cheap, as it were, uh, but they couldn't get enough of those, and that just stirred up bad memories. Um, and as Austin pointed out, because you got the internet, because you got cell phone cameras, uh, they couldn't hide anymore, and they haven't found any solution to that. And then, of course, you know, a lot of people are saying now, you know, if you look a little further ahead, who's our real enemy? It's China. China has claims on most of what is the Russian Far East, Vladivostok, uh, a lot of Siberia, uh, a lot of the Far Eastern territories. And now Russia, China hasn't, well, they wrecked those, those claims up in the 70s, and, uh, and that, that almost came to a nuclear war. Um, the claims are still there, and the Russians, Russians see what ha- what's happening in the South China Sea and in India, where the uh, basically the, uh, the the Chinese are claiming big chunks of uh, northeastern uh, India and other chunks along the uh, the Tibetan border, um, they say you know we, we got a, we got a potential problem here that we're ignoring at our own peril. So there are a lot of things working against the Russians. They basically made a move. They have as the as the classic uh, you know quip goes a tiger by the tail. How do you let go without getting torn apart? Uh, it's nice to see bad guys have problems like that, but it is a threat to the uh, you know to uh, to uh, to the world because they still have all these nuclear weapons, uh, and and nobody knows exactly how it's going to play out because Putin has not been able to find an elegant way uh, to back off without showing himself to be you know a fraud and uh, and you know having bad things happen. Uh, it's the same thing in China, but that's another story. Hey Dan, I'm I'm gonna add two quick things here before we sign off. One, Jim pointed out the pushback has been significant. Uh, the fact that Finland and, and Sweden actually uh, have uh, sectors of their public that, that discuss joining NATO, and you've you've we've known for a long time 
that NATO would implicitly defend uh, implied this Sweden and and uh, Finland, the, some of the Nordic uh, nations. I think there was a, a Danish commander that recently uh, said that, and that another uh, uh, NATO uh, officer who was uh, not a Nordic said that that was uh, something that uh, uh, should be done or uh, uh, could be done. I believe is the way he. Uh, Expressed it, but there's uh, th- that is a change, particularly uh, <laughs> Sweden and, and Finland actually talking about uh, joining uh, joining NATO. But it does reflect pushback uh, uh, against against Moscow. Now, second point though. Now, if you look at the, I believe it's it's the second edition of a quick and dirty guide to war, uh, which came out right as the Soviet Union dissolved. There's a discussion about an att- attempts to rebuild, just in, in a small section, uh, a, a, a future uh, a Russian empire. In the late 1990s, I came up with a name for it, because as Jim talked about the, the population decline and the like, Russia, Ukraine, Belarus, and Kazakhstan would uh, has, has the power to be a world power. Now, I didn't know the name, well, if Putin existed, but someone was going to try to do this. I came up with the name Rubik as off of Rubik's Cube, R-U-B-K-B-K. Jim got a big laugh out of it. I didn't finally use, I think the first time I used it in print was 2003 or 2004, but I used it in some uh, uh, speeches. That may not be true. I may have used it uh, in, the, uh, in the late 90s, but it was, it was kind of an inside joke. But it was an inside joke um, that that had uh, uh, some real validity. All those four uh, territories together uh, do have the, the power and population, agricultural, industrial resources, and definitely the natural resources with everything that's outside Siberia to, to be a world power. Uh, Putin said explicitly, I believe it was 2005, that uh, the greatest tragedy of the 20th century was the dissolution of the Soviet Union. And there is an, if, you can say it's propaganda, you can say that, I, I do think the fellow's intelligent. I read on the internet that some people think I think he's a genius. No, I don't. I just think he's somebody who knows how to take advantage of weak leadership among his adversaries, which he has done very well, but that's, that's, uh, that's okay. I do th- think he's a, he's a wily and cunning KGB colonel, which is what uh, what he really was trying to be, and that's what he's, he just happens to be in in charge of uh, of Russia now. I do think that that was a sincere statement on his part from a largely you know calculated, cynical, callous uh, I- individual. He he could see that the Soviet Union was a w- world power, and again, those four states uh, put together. Has uh, it, it doesn't take a, take a lot of smarts to see what they what they if you bring them together and synergize them, uh, what uh, the possibility you've got. The problem is, and that's what Jim's discussion about all the divisions in there. It's hard to bring those folks together, and they've only been brought together uh, brought together with force. Nevertheless. That is, uh, I think that is an aspiration. I know it's an aspiration within certain leadership circles uh, in Russia to create this new 
a powerful empire so we can be global powers again, and not just a nuclear power, which is basically what, as Jim pointed out, you have to reckon with them because of all the nuclear weapons. Uh, but nevertheless, the nuclear weapons don't translate into cultural, economic, political success. And if that's all you can do is, is threaten uh, your, your neighbors, then you're on your way to a North Korean situation, uh, maybe which we ought to come back and discuss maybe in a, in a future podcast. That's, my, that's the last thing i got to say about it. Just remember Rubik. Yeah, it was a joke, but the thing is, though, as a, as a concept, uh, as a, there's <laughs> someone wants to do it, and uh, you, that's a lot of the troublemaking that may trace back to thinking, gee, if we can just knock these guys off and grab, uh, and grab enough of this, we got a power base. I'll leave it at that. Yeah, and that's basically, and that's basically the problem in Iran, rebuilding the Persian Empire, uh, and also in China, uh, because as I point out, you know, what the Chinese word for uh, China basically means everything under the sun, and people don't like to do that kind of translation, but that's what it means in you know classic Chinese. So never underestimate the nostalgia and the 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 you know the willingness to do anything to rebuild a lost empire. And, and that's a that's a good way that's a way to get uh, a good way to put it. If you add the word uh, dangerous nostalgia, that's, exactly. that's what it amounts to. It's yeah. Very dangerous I, nostalgia. Fatal I, nostalgia. I guess uh, if, that might even be better. It could be fatal. I guess the theory. Hey, Dan? I guess the theory of we just should trust everyone and it will lead to peace uh, doesn't quite apply like some people think it does. Well, it never but, has. <laughs> Let's leave it at that. All right. We'll talk to you all later. Bye. Bye, guys. Bye.